Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode number 38. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by another nerd, Carissa. Hello. Rory and Christina are both off on vacation. They will return, probably with tans and hangovers, and we will all be there hopefully soon. Together. Together, we take on the week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to Action Comics number 958. Our companion song for that is Superman, It's Not Easy by Five for Fighting, because I think, well, obviously it talks about Superman, but it talks about the difficulty in being Superman, and you've got multiple super people in here, and they're all having their own struggles. So I thought it was fitting, and I liked the song. I can't stand to fly I'm not that naive I'm just out to find The better part of me I'm more than a bird I'm more than a plane I'm more than some pretty face Beside a train And it's not easy to be So, Action Comics 958, it's by DC Comics, it's written by Dan Jurgens, art by Patrick Searcher, colors by Ulysses Arolia Areola. I'm not sure how you say that last name. It looks like Areola. So, this is the continuing story of Superman and Lex Luthor confronting each other, and then having the bigger threat of Doomsday show up there. And I picked this for a couple reasons. There were moments in here, both with storytelling and with art, that I really enjoyed very much. Superman and Lex are fighting Doomsday, and there's a part in here, and this was the part that made me put this in my stack to be considered for Pick of the Week, where Lois and their son are watching Superman fight Doomsday, and the kid's talking, guy looks really tough, you know, and then Lois tells him, well, you know, daddy's fought him before. And he's like, oh, what happened? Like, any kid would ask, you know, what happened? And then there's the lie that Lois tells, which is daddy won. And to me, that was the moment for me to put this in contention. I like that look on her face. I like the moment where she has to lie to her child to protect him from the truth that this is what killed his father. thought that had a lot of impact for me. And it's a very small moment, but that whole moment of them having to watch what's happening plays out later in the book to pretty good effect also. There's also moments in here with Lex Luthor that I enjoy. I like that Lex is not simple, whether he's good or bad, and, you know, do his motivations matter or do his actions matter? I've talked about this a lot before with multiple times when we've had Lex in here. And in this one, there's lots of times where he's trying to kind of upstage Superman and prove his worth as the new Superman, which are kind of selfish motivations, but his actual actions are to fight against Doomsday and rescue people and, you know, act in a heroic manner. So I thought that was interesting that even with motivations that are true to his character, he can still act in ways that are heroic. And it also, in the the fight, there's a couple times where I think it's Jimmy Olsen who's like, if he can pull this off, he really is a Superman, you know, when he's like trying to rescue the monorail that is collapsing. And then there's a part where Superman says, well, maybe I have him wrong, you know, and I'll need his help to defeat this. So I thought that was pretty cool. There's also moments in here that are like classic 
Superman iconic images. There's a part with where he's fighting Doomsday and he flies up to Doomsday, both arms extended and like hits him and is carrying him off into space to play, drag him off into space where there's no oxygen and then throw him into the sun, which I thought was pretty cool. And then there's also, this is the first time where you see this little art touch where when he's moving really fast, it leaves this colored where it's red, white, and blue. The red for his cape on either side and then the blue of his uniform down the middle, which I like. So that to me was a nice little nod to, you know, Superman's like all-American roots. But then there's a part where Lex Luthor flies really fast and you see the same image behind him, which I like when art details tell you things without having to spell it out in hundreds of words. You know, that with just simple images, you can convey a lot. And I think by setting up that imagery with Superman before and then showing it you with Lex later on, that it kind of tells you their similarities. I mean, obviously they're still different because when Lex Luthor does it, it's not quite as defined. So he's not, he's not as good, but it is still there. So I like that. And then towards the end, there's a part where his son sees Superman getting beaten by Doomsday, basically. And he wants to go and help because he has superpowers too, which we didn't review Superman last week, but he figures pretty prominently in that with his superpowers coming to to be, which is kind of nice to see Superman filling in the role of the original Pa Kent, you know, that he has this young son who also has superpowers that he's trying to raise. So that's another interesting angle for this. So the son goes off to help, which is, of course, only going to make things worse because now there'll be someone that he has to protect in the battle so he won't be able to focus completely on it. And just the fight with Doomsday is pretty cool. There's lots of collateral damage that Doomsday, of course, doesn't care about and is actually intentionally causing, which is distracting the two super people that are trying to fight him. There's a moment towards the end where Doomsday rips off Lex Luthor's super power armor that he has and is getting ready to crush him. So stakes are getting pretty high in this battle, which I thought was another nice parallel to Lex Luthor being Superman and fighting Doomsday and if not getting killed really close to to dying that you know he has to face Doomsday just like Superman had to face Doomsday. I thought it was very classic Superman. I do agree the parts that really affected me were the parts with Lois and Sun. I don't think she necessarily lied. I think she left out important details. I think what she was saying was true, but she was wording it in a very particular way. I don't think she's the type that would necessarily flat out lie. Sure, it's a lie by omission or a white lie, depending on your you know but she didn't say how he won but he also paid the price in doing so because technically he did win (laughs) like that's technically true true he did defeat doomsday at At a a great cost cost. that's what i'm saying so it's like what she said was technically true i'll pull the obi-wan from a certain point of view You lying desert hermit, you. There was a lot of interesting, I think it was like, fight was actually choreographed really well. That was really easy to follow. They intermingled the parts with the Clark Kent and the Jimmy Olsen very in, in an interesting way. Part where the kid starts to take off, like, I can do it. And he's like hovering off the ground. I was like, ah, that's the part that actually really interests me a lot. The train, I feel like it's been overdone. I felt that was very classic. That was definitely a trope that they were, I felt, Yeah, going I mean, for, it was very you know? classic Superman. In that regards, I really like it that it felt like a Superman thing. It, I like this one a lot more than I was like. I like the Superbro one, which I obviously hated. So th- this one is, th- is is pretty good. I liked it. Right. For as much as I like a Superman comic. <laughs> there was a part in here that I was a little confused by where there's this mysterious figure looking like a monitor that's showing everything. Oh, see, I thought you would know who that was. I didn't. I don't know who that is. So if there's any listeners out there who know 
know who that is, send an email to fourcolornerds at uh, gmail.com. And the first one of you that gives me a credible answer to who that is, include in your answer a book you would like us to review that week, and we will review it. Because I have no idea who the hell that is, and I really want to know who that is. He's some kind of watcher figure who's doing something. I I don't know who he is, and I I think it's important to understand who he is. seems to know what's going on and why there's multiple. Like, he's testing these multiple versions of Hallel. And I also like that image I was talking about where he hits Doomsday in his classic Superman pose. You know, the line is like, this is a job for Superman. I was like, all right. They're doing some homages there, but it doesn't seem too horribly cheesy. I like the way that they're doing the references. And I do agree, the monorail, I guess you could either view it as being overplayed or as being a classic trope of a Superman fight. There's a disaster going on at the same time. Not just Superman. I mean, the Spider-Man movies have done it. Even the Batman movies have done it. Not, not just movies, but those have also appeared in the comics. As far as like pop culture, most recent memory, it just seems like it's been something that's been highly used lately. <laughs> right. The helicopter smash is pretty interesting. Oh yeah, where Doomsday threw Superman into the re- into yes. the reporters in the helicopter, which they were like, oh, Doomsday is using strategy. This is different. So he's a little smarter than the previous Doomsday. I'm really enjoying a lot of the, the DC books, which we'll get to some other DC books later on. I gave it three, two imposters, and not one of you has any sense. <laughs> I will give it four. This is a job for Superman. I went into the Marvel Universe. I had Rocket Raccoon and Groot number six. Marvel Comics, written by Scotty Young. Art by Brett Bean. Colors by Jean-Francois Bellew. He's the colorist for I Hate Fairyland also, so I think he and Scotty Young must work together a lot. This is Rocket and Raccoon number six. It has Rocket and Groot in uh, one us a one upmanship battle of like across oh, the galaxy. I laugh my ass off in this Basically one. Basically, is what's going on. This was funny. There are some great little moments. My regular nod to the titles page. I just think it's so funny. Every titles page for this series is telling like a Boy Scouts or whatever stories, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we should let you go to sleep." But I believe those neckerchiefs stand for something. <laughs> so he's just like giving him like their spiel and telling them with falsehoods, but in a funny, humorous way starts at a bar and rocket is basically doing his whole like i'm the best there ain't nothing like me but me and no one can beat me at anything like i win everything and they're playing pool (laughs) groot has some sass in this issue i'm just saying you don't normally see groot being that sassy groot has some sick burns in here he schools him at pool and they keep making bets and then it goes to darts and his darts are like literally like into one another like breaking like dead on like Like robin hood thing where you split the arrows like their darts Mm -hmm. are doing that and then rocket's like oh well those are just drunk games. Ping pong. Now, ping pong takes some skill. And he beats him at ping pong, like, really bad. Like, hits him, knocks him out cold. And then, like, there's video games. He's like, my controller, he has an excuse, basically, for everything. Oh, my controller's sticking. Which is, is so true. Whenever you're playing someone at, like, a yeah. video game and you start beating them, they will always blame the controller or, yeah. or something else. And then there's, so. like, poker and cornhole. And then it looks like some weird ver- space version of Monopoly. And then it gets... Quarters. Yeah. Yeah, quarters. And then there's, like this drink and basically he drinks rocket under the table and then there's like other bar patrons betting on them and so basically <laughs> my favorite part is where it goes and then some time passes do you want us to clean him out of the way and Groot's like nah I got it and it's like literally it's like and later and then later later then later what those panels reminded me of I don't know if you remember in I Hate Fairyland where uh, Larry like yeah. his conscience had that scene where they're building all the houses mm-hmm. and stuff while Gert is passed out the bar patrons definitely look like weird space versions of I Hate Fairyland like they look like 
they could be from the same world. Fishing enough time later to no longer have be under the influence of alcohol, they wake up. And so <laughs> then it goes into the space race because he goes, we're racing for slip. Then they start pulling like all these Fast and Furious references. Like literally it says, I'm about to so fast you so furious. You don't even know. <laughs> then they start arguing about who's Vin Diesel. Yeah. And then he goes, too soon? <laughs> yeah. yeah well, that's where Groot has, I think, his sickest burn of the, yeah. or clearly is making a Paul Walker clearly. joke there. Yeah. yeah. So while racing, Rocket gets contacted by someone who, uh, I guess he owes them a favor. They're saying, we need you to come here and help us. And Rocket's like, yeah, 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 I will. And they're like, no, 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 you don't get to finish your race. You need to come here now. Rocket's like, fine, I changed the finish line. It's going to be at this planet. So they race there. <laughs> that way they say, no, it was to the atmosphere, not to the planet. Like, he's changed the rules. Well, Groot won. <laughs> the planet Olim 7 is like an inner rim of the outer reaches planet. They're always at war and they want their help with their enemy. And they start like saying, well, this should be, I think he says, says easy peasy. <laughs> Rocket does. Sorry, it made me think of Miss Marvel. And they're doing the one up again. And one of my favorite panels is the, I am Groot. No, not my mom. And then you're going to regret that. And they're like, it's like up in each other's faces. They seem so happy going around yeah. and shooting all these aliens. Groot does the whole arm stretch like through multiple alien bugs. And they're just, and Rocket has the two guns. And they're just kind of doing the, when you've seen the Lord of the Rings movie, when Gimli. The Helm's Deep. Legolas is like one, two with the bow. And they're counting off how they're killing Orc. And Gimli is, you know, every time he slashes one. That is what this scene completely reminds me of. They're in competition, but they're still friends. And that they're just kind of really, really competitive. And very, very effective, might I add. <laughs> they get awards at the end because they basically ended this thousand year war in the span of minutes. And they're like saying, if we would have just gotten you two in competition with each other years ago, we wouldn't have been in war for so long. They had one last enemy. And the last argument is who gave him the heart attack to die first? <laughs> <laughs> they decide to end their competition with a thumb war because they're hella mature. Well, then they also have that award ceremony that's totally the award ceremony from Star Wars. New Hope. Like most of the Rocket, Raccoons, and Groots, it was just really cute. It was funny. You get a lot of good chuckles and laughs. It doesn't take itself too seriously. There's lots of hidden pop culture references if you can spot them, and that's always fun. This was a damn good time. I laughed my ass off the whole time. Um, I thought competitions they were doing were really entertaining. All of Rocket's excuses are excuses and things I've, I've heard from when you beat people or when you lose and are trying to make excuses. So I felt that that really rang true. I liked his line about uh, pool and darts or drunk people games to stay awake. <laughs> I like that. I like the stuff with the video game controllers. Just the whole thing was very, very funny. Like this felt to me like it could have been an episode of maybe like Animaniacs or something like that. Like that's the kind of energy that it has. But it, it's nonstop. I laughed. I enjoyed it. I felt it gave you good character insights. And again, just funny from cover to yeah. cover. Funny, it's always entertaining, always laugh. The team is working really well. Good job. I give it a good four and a half. You're right, we're hella mature. <laughs> I will give it three and a half. We're racing for pink slips. Nice. And I believe you're continuing us into the Marvel Universe. Yes. So I had Miss Marvel number eight from Marvel Comics, written by G. Willow Wilson, art by Takeshi Miyazawa and Adrian Alfana, colors by Ian Herring and Irma Navilia. One thing I really like about the Miss Marvel comics is they make a big deal about how much she idolizes Captain Marvel, that that is one of her heroes. So we've had this, the issues where she meets Captain Marvel, issues where they team up, 
So those are all kind of big moments for her. But this is the moment where Captain Marvel gives her control of something, that she trusts her enough to entrust her Carol cadets, which is basically the, the Carol Corps from Captain Marvel. Yeah. So they are dealing a little bit with Civil War stuff, but not too much. They need a team to go and deal with stuff that is being predicted. And that's the team that Captain Marvel has put together and gives Miss Marvel control over. So it actually opens up with what I thought was a really interesting story that has zero to do with the Marvel Universe or superpowers or anything like that, but is just a fascinating little story. The story of in 1947 when India gained its independence and Pakistan was carved out of it and all the people who were Muslims had to move from the Hindu areas there and all the people who were Hindus in the north had had to move south. So it's like the greatest human migration in history, which they mentioned. Mm -hmm. So there's just these really heartfelt scenes of these people having to leave behind everything that they've ever known and travel to this new land and how frightening that is and how scary it is. And they're talking about signs that they see along the way. Like they see like a shooting star. And then in the last panel of that little flashback, there's a star in the sky, which is actually, I think that that is the star that's on Captain Marvel's. It looks like it, like like the way it's drawn. It it looks very much like that. That's like the sign for them. So I really like that story. I think that is one of the great things that that Miss Marvel does is it's very human and it tells stories that you haven't really heard before. So this is, you know, Kamala's either grandparents or great grandparents having to move to to Pakistan, which is where her parents are from. She's a Pakistani-American and a Muslim. Throughout this issue, one thing I really liked about it was just how excited and happy she is throughout this book. When she gets to go to space, she's just amazed that she's in space. It's really cool for her. She's a teenager and she's excited for all these new things that she's seeing for the first time. Alpha Flight Space Station, she's super excited. She's very excited to be trusted by Captain Marvel. I like that they both have that little red sash Mm -hmm. that she wears kind of as homage to her. So her and the team, they're in Jersey City and they're waiting for predictions to come in. And they get a prediction that, and this part made me laugh, that there's a Canadian ninja (laughs) (laughs) who's stealing a tank and driving it through town. So they have to go stop him. And there's a scene of them running through the alleyway and they're all doing, you know, leaping over stuff and running on the sides of walls and all that stuff. And (laughs) at the end, she's like, wow, you guys are really good. And they're like, cross Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of funny that they get to do all their comic book stuff, but then she kind of looks at them like, wow, that was really cool. That she can still find joy and wonder in things that could just be commonplace for her. There's this crazy tank that this Canadian ninja, it's got a face painted on it. It's got missiles on the side that say like, oh, Canada. (laughs) He's been driving this random pattern through town to evade everyone. And he pops out and they start fighting and he kind of looks like Shredder a little bit. So he starts fighting them and he's like, how did you find me? And they're like, well, first of all, you're driving a tank through the middle of the city. So it's not that hard to find you. They subdue him. I forgot the ice ninja stars. Oh, yes. Yeah, because he's Canadian, right? So his, yeah. his ninja stars are made out of ice. That was a nice, I thought, a little break from kind of the, some of the seriousness of like the Civil War stuff was the, the Canadian ninja is very funny and the take looks hilarious. Nice little mix of serious topic with humor. And then we go back into a more serious conversation she has with her sister-in-law about predicting crime and if that's a good idea or a bad idea. That, I think, is your kind of your Civil War tie-in, but it's not too heavy-handed. I feel like those are conversations that they would be having anyway. I don't feel like it's strained or forced. She relates it back to a very real-world situation where she's talking about the tough-on-crime initiatives and how it's caused a generation of people to go to jail instead of going to college, and that it targets the disadvantaged and minorities, and which gives Kamala, I think, something to, to think about. So she's again, gets a prediction that there's a guy who's going to rob somewhere, and she drops in on him, and he's kind of standing, like, looking in the window. She grabs him, and he's like, how did you know, you know what I was going to do? I was just thinking about it. And as she's 
is doing that, that's when they get word that there's going to be a disaster at her school. There's something bad that's going to happen at her school and that they have an address of the person who's responsible. So they go kind of running off to it and they do some some basically parkour through the city when she's like enlarged over buses and like things like that that I thought was, again, amusing. Mm -hmm. And then she gets to the house, runs upstairs to the person's room, and it's a friend of hers. There was a moment in one of the Civil War books where like, what happens when the next time when it's someone we know, which they do with Bruce Banner in Civil War. And here, where the prediction is that one of her friends, it's interesting that the prediction is leading her to a friend of hers who she trusts and knows who has no idea why she's there. So is he actually responsible for something? Is he doing something he doesn't realize the consequences of? What's going to happen? I like that there's now a personal stake in what she's going to do next. So, I mean, I like this. I thought it had good plot, good characters, lots of interesting fights that were humorous, lots of details in the artwork with her when she moves around through the city physically, like how she moves over stuff. And I thought that intro story was really good. The beginning was very interesting. And then how it ties in because it has the pregnant woman looking at her bracelets and it cuts into showing Miss Marvel and she has the bracelet on her wrist. Right. I know you keep saying it's not as heavy handed, but I really feel like this issue made me think a lot more about the two sides in this particular arc of uh, Civil War. It actually made me kind of mad at Carol. I felt like it was almost too manipulated of her. Like she's using her position with Kamala too much. When you go to someone who envies you and looks up to you, it's really easy to sway their opinion in something, right? Sure. And I just feel it's kind of very manipulative of her in that regard. I kind of view it that she trusts her. Miss Marvel is an Avenger. I don't know if you remember the end of the world before Secret War, that they were in the end of the world together, you know, so they've Mm -hmm. They fought together. So, I mean, she definitely, I think, is using her. She goes out of her way to mention how some of her teammates don't think the same way. It feels like a very insidious, very subtle, I'm turning you onto my side against Tony and the others. I'm going to go ahead and start putting my tendrils out there and working with this person and following his visions without anyone say or go ahead. I'm going to keep moving this forward. And it just, I don't know, it just seems... Uh, just, it really irked me. I don't think uh, Miss Marvel is doing anything bad. I think she's just like, yeah, I want to help. Duh, 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 let's go, you know? Right. But I think that urging from Carol was just manipulative. It just bugged me a lot. I think I'm definitely clearly getting on the, I'm on the Tony side. I'm, I'm on Team Stark. Because <laughs> <laughs> also what it really made me think about is, so when they're talking about Ulysses' visions and how they're coming in, there was some line in here. I can't remember the exact wording, but it just made me think of something, how the vision we got of the Hulk at the end of the one of the la- later issues because they even say he's only showing you an instant things can change they're, they're only showing you this out yeah that's Tony's idea one possible future like it wasn't even a hundred percent they're showing you so that's the thing it's maybe that vision that they got of the Hulk is because you had this vision that made you go after him that made this result happen like like you know they don't show what builds up to it there's an idea about fate and destiny that you get I mean people have been exploring this idea forever yeah like the whole Oedipus Rex trilogy going way way back is yeah. about a prophecy that you want to avoid so you do everything you can to avoid that coming but all of your actions lead to that coming true. So are these self-fulfilling prophecies? Who knows? Yeah, that's what it seems like. Can't see you guys going after the Hulk in any other situation that would lead to that vision. And that's probably, but the vision is probably what led you to go do that to have that be the result. The fact that they're not seeing that, or, well, Tony clearly is. To me, I'm like, yeah, because in what situation would that possibly ever really happen, like that scene, you know? So it just seems more and more I'm just being pushed away from my care. Like, I understand there's benefits, like, but really the guy robbing a girl 
grocery store. Not world-shaking, yeah. But I understand, like, trying to help things to prevent, I mean, really, how much damage was the Canadian Ninja gonna do? I mean... Was causing some trouble, so... Yeah, if it was gonna blow up, sure. Okay, blowing up, sure, that's bad. But still, it still got crashed into a side of a building, which that's still some collateral damage anyway. So it's just like, end of the world stuff, sure. I like some of the face acting in here. I like where they kind of have images of her where she's talking to Captain Marvel and getting her, you know, kind of recruitment speech and she's all excited and jazzed for it. There's like images of her doing like little like the hand pump and like, yeah, let's do it, you know? And then there's the contrast of her sitting at the table with her sister-in-law hearing the real world implications of what happens when you do this kind of thing. And there's that moment where she's kind of, you know, got her chin kind of like resting and thinking about what's happening that, you know, not everything is so clear cut. So I like that stuff. I gave it three and a half. I'm Marcos. I'm lactose intolerant. Because <laughs> I like, that was my favorite intro of all of them. <laughs> They're all talking thing. about all their majors and how they're qualified. Yeah, and his was just, I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> I will give it four O Canada's for the <laughs> hijinks, the Canadian ninja. I had She-Wolf number one, Image Comic, written by Rick Tommaso and art by Rick Tommaso. As you might have, gentle listeners might have realized by now, I am a big werewolf fan. I get very excited for anything and all things were creature. So I was, had very high hope for this issue. It was She-Wolf, clearly it was about werewolves and by chick werewolves, so yay. So it starts off with this girl named Gabby, I believe her name is. It's the clear kind of walking down into a scene where like a kinfolk and your were person's freaking out. I was like, okay. So I clearly seemed like she knew this Brian person was already a werewolf. She didn't seem too surprised by his rage, was trying right. to calm him down. He gets out. There's, I believe, think it was police officers that are like, oh, get out of the way, get out of the way. And he freaks out, scratches her, they shoot him and he dies. And then the rest of the book is really the kind of thing like where, you know, you're transforming into a werewolf, but you don't know you are, or you, you do know. No, but just like the series of events that take place. So clearly this guy's family blames her for his death. And apparently people are trying to kick her out of school, out of like the whole school system, not even to like transfer. And like she's starting to hear, but like, like there was this really weird scene where like the principal was saying something, but like the other version of him came out. Like, I don't know like, if that meant like she was reading his pheromones or could read his mind or what he was really her saying. paranoia like, and insanity, you know? But it was a really interesting effect. And uh, so basically it was showing him say one thing, but her hearing it another way. But the parallels were still there kind of thing. Her going to the beach, you know, like dogs reacting weirdly to her, her growling at them. And some of it ends up being like a dream, but then starts to happen. And it's really strange. I really did not like the artwork. I I hated it. Honestly, I don't like this book. I'm really sad to say I wanted to. Like I said, I love werewolves. It looked goofy. It looked weird. The story, sure, the story was like classic, you know, coming, turning into a werewolf-ish. But it just didn't grab me. I didn't care about the characters. But I think a big part of it was the artwork. I could not damn artwork. I am sorry, dude. This falls under the same thing where sometimes when the writer and the artist are the same person, it just doesn't mesh. There's some people who can pull it off and there's other ones where it's like teamwork. Work with the team, please. Because the artwork, I think, killed this entire book for me. I could not stand it. I really like you going outside the box and trying for a different look. It just did nothing. The wolf part, when it was like the weird, long, stretchy wolves, kind of had that weird medieval tapestry look. But uh, other than that, it I, I did not like it. I kind of agree with you. I think this was a giant steaming pile of werewolf shit. I hated this book. The art, like you said, like, I get that it's very, very stylized, but I don't feel that it's... Mm-hmm a very good use of that style. The style itself, I'm not going to really like that much. Just in the way it looks, everything looks ugly. 
to me. Maybe there are mm-hmm. some people who are going to really dig this art style, but I I did not. I hated it. I thought the writing was confusing, I and mean, it certainly wasn't helped by the kind of ambiguity of the art. I mean, I get that they're kind of trying to go with insanity and, you know, who knows what's really happening. That scene you're talking about with the principal, where you have the principal, what he's actually saying, and then there's that shadow mm-hmm. image of him coming out and saying other stuff. There's all these weird visions, and it's very trippy. I didn't find the story to be interesting and the art to be good. I really, really hated this book. Yeah, I'm super bummed. I feel like I'm always the one that picks these really bad books and it makes me so sad. I mean, you would think, how hard is it to write a good werewolf book? Like, stop trying to do all these crazy metaphorical stuff with it and just have some goddamn werewolves doing werewolf shit. Like, doesn't have to be white wolf werewolf stuff. I mean, because that's, you know, that's one take on werewolves. This is just, is not good. There's like one point where she's wearing a weird medallion with a wolf head on it, and another time she's wearing like a red cloak. I'm like, okay, red riding hood. Does she know she's turning into a werewolf? It doesn't even seem like it's clear. Like, what is going on? What is her base knowledge of werewolves? Because she seemed to know that... I think that they cast a spell. Yeah. Issue was like shape-shifting or something like that. Yeah, I saw that. I thought she was looking like a D&D compendium for a second. Yes, spell number one, shape-shifting. She's got, you know, the pentacle, and so she's clearly, you know... So disappointed. Like, I hate bashing books. I don't recommend this to people, especially if you're wearing this. No. Just don't. It's not... It's confusing. I just, I don't like it at all. There's not a single panel I like. Like, a lot of times when I'm reviewing, like, like a book that I consider, like, a five-star book, is it'll be that there's not a single panel I don't like. That everything works. And in this mm-hmm. one, it's the opposite. Nothing works. Well, yeah. I will say the weird werewolf doing the old lady in the bed and then bites her arm off and it's like, you'll eat too. That was kind of interesting. I'll give it that. That was interesting. Oh, the little red riding hood where she's going to grandmother's house and the wolf is there already? Seriously, people, I just saved you some time. I guess I give it one and a half grandma bangins, I guess. One werewolf growl. Hated it. Every way you can hate a book. Back to DC, over to Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman number one from DC Comics, written by Greg Rucka, art by Liam Sharp, colors by Laura Martin. So the whole Wonder Woman series is going to be all of the odd numbered issues are going to be this storyline and all the even storylines are going to be the origin of Wonder Woman, like the year one storyline. So there's going to be two separate storylines going on for this, which basically means there's going to be two Wonder Woman books, but they're just calling them all Wonder Woman. First thing, the art on this is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful looking. The way Wonder Woman looks, she looks... I like the way she looks. She looks like athletic and beautiful without being too cheesecake sex symbol. She's in this jungle in Africa and that looks amazing. The scenery she's running through is just gorgeous. And she's encountering all kinds of weird animal tribal people in the jungle that have all these totemic stuff that they're wearing and there's weird altars and all kinds of interesting, strange stuff out in the jungle. Then there's also kind of a parallel story. The man that she first met, Trevor, who's kind of been her love interest uh, at some times and been the person who knows her. So he's leading this military expedition into this war zone in the same country in one of the cities. The higher-ups are convinced that Wonder Woman is active in this area because he's told her about it. He says he hasn't, that he hasn't known her for a very long time, and it's, you know, it's just coincidence that she's there. So as Wonder Woman is kind of making her way through, you know, the jungles, she keeps telling them, I'm not here to fight, I'm here for answers. I want to talk, but if I have to fight, I will. He meets these people who are dressed up with, like, animal heads and things that take her to this weird altar of, like, these bones that are put together to look really strange. Oh, I love that. Straight up, like, Conan-looking. Yes, very Conan or Cthulhu or... Like, this whole thing had a very pulp 
feel to yeah. me. Could very easily have been an Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan type story. Yeah. You know, like a lot of the same feeling that you get from that. So then when they get to this, there's these hyena people that attack her, where she again tells them, I'm here to talk to your goddess, you know, for, for aid. I'm not here to fight. I will if, you know, if I have to, but I don't want to. And she talks about the corruption that she can feel in them, physically feel it, like it turns her stomach, it sickens her soul. This is not a place that she's happy to be at. So these people attack her and they look really pretty awesome. The fight scenes with her are really, really interesting. And then there's a panel at the end, which to me, I love the way this looks, where she finally meets their goddess, which is the cheetah, who is a very old classic Wonder Woman villain that she's come to her for aid because she used to be like geologist and, you know, so she's appealing to her, which I thought was interesting. Like how desperate must she be to, to come to here for assistance? Mm-hmm. I really love that image of the cheetah. It looks so badass. I really really liked this. Wasn't expecting to because I didn't like the rebirth at all. The first thing I was going to say, like my big thing in big letters on my notes is oh my god it is gorgeous going from one just a book that we just actually hated this is so beautifully drawn so classically drawn also in a way it just it feels right and natural it just so good job liam sharp the artwork is gorgeous first it looked just natives with skin masks over their head you know like the little like kind of a coif right right but then it changes to where they actually look more and more like because then you all of a sudden then it changes on the next page and they're more like silhouettes and i'm like okay well that could still be head but then when it jumps and attacks them they're like were creatures and i'm like finally a different a decent were creature going on <laughs> in here because man i love that that was when i fa- i mean i posted the picture of that panel he said they're like jackal hyena were creatures yeah and they look and they're great and she looks like all right let's bring it it's so good and then yeah the thing with the i could care less about the modern like looking time stuff i mean the guy talking i like when he pulls out her like it's her um it looks like a mug shot that he pulls out yeah, from when he first met her. And he's like, you know, but this one's mine, this picture. Oh, well, yeah, because they're like, there are way better pictures on the internet of her. Like, why do you carry mm-hmm. this one around? Yeah. Like, it actually kind of looks to me almost like a picture from, like, the 70s TV show. Yes, I agree. And then the panel that is the one where it just shows the, so it's the fight scene when she's fighting all the were creatures, right? And they're fighting. It shows the close-ups of the teeth, her eye, and, like, her, like, her face getting slashed in the claws. Nine drawings, but, like, in a grid. I, I love that panel. I think it shows movement with clo- it's the second to last one yeah. and uh i love it yes and um yes cheetah is drawn very nice where you know she has her arm braced up yeah. against the neck so she can't like snap at her that's a nice nine panel layout because it's a pretty classic layout but they vary the camera how close the camera is zoomed in like there's some where it's yeah. zoomed out to her whole body then there's ones where it's just the mouth or just the claw so mm-hmm. classic layout but they make it interesting by changing the degree of how much you zoom in yeah, the artwork i think this really carries it i wasn't as interested in the more like present day modern looking scenes where they're like thinking he did except for the part where you know he pulls out her photo right that was like i'm like okay i just wanted to get through that and past it to get more back to the jungle scenes because it looked so gorgeous one thing i did kind of like about that is i mean it's clearly the same artist and you can tell it's it doesn't look that different but there is enough of a visual difference between them that you can tell that the world in the mystical world inside that jungle is very different than the our normal world where it's politics and you know machine guns and and stuff it looks Yeah. Looks different enough to convey that. There's also, I like that when she goes to fight those uh, 
hyena people. She has a sword at her side that's enchanted and super powerful, but that's not what she's using to fight because she says mm-hmm. she wants answers. And what she's using to fight them is her lasso, which I thought yeah. was interesting to show that she's not there to kill them. She actually is looking for answers. And when it comes to like physically having to get in there, she's just doing hand-to-hand combat with them. She's not pulling out her blade and attacking them. Yeah. That was a nice detail. So yeah, it got me really excited for Wonder Woman again. I mean, I like seeing she's a strong character and I like, while I always say I'm not a huge DC fan, there are certain things if they are done well and they are gorgeous, I will read them. And so I'm hoping this one continues on that, its pace. I gave it four I'm here for answers. I gave it four just answer me because of that one panel where it just says answer me, answer me, answer me over and over again. I enjoyed this very much. I'm really happy with DC Rebirth so far. But we got more strong women. Yes. Bitch Planet number eight. Image Comics written by my favorite Kelly Sue DeConnick. Art by Valentine de Landro. Colors by Kelly Fitzpatrick. If you haven't following along with Fitch Planet, you should catch up. It's a little interesting how it, one part is a girl going to like running late entering looks like a restaurant or a bar. Person says that they're closing. She clearly gives like a, a passcode, like a password phrase to get in and they let her in. They usher her in. You hear someone saying like, and, she, and they're saying she's running late and then it's like, I am so, in, it's almost like they're like a Ventru if you get the reference in like Vampire. I'm so and so son of so and so sired by so and so, but it's like this weird list of names of women. Like I'm the sister and daughter of and yeah it's their lineage of the revolution yes and so it was very interesting so there's that and then it cuts back to bitch planet it shows this woman coming in as another heavier girls coming out and they're saying are you okay and they're basically doing like medical exams it looks like on them she's saying well why are you doing this you just left us here to die and clearly they hit her but it's not on panel they show it later she comes out and she has a bloody lip then it cuts to cam she's put her into a cell with the old guard who they arrested for um, Mako's death. And they're going at it like, oh, you here to find your brother? Yeah, I know you have a brother. And finds some contraband. Inside that, or it looks like a Bible or some sort of religion item. It has a map of the whole entire station. First, she calls for guards and no guards come. And they say no guards are going to come. And she's like, well, how do you have this? It has the entire thing. They don't even show the guards the entire land. Like how the layout of the this? map of the prison. And she's like, well, how did you get that? She also has a match. She's like, what was that for? She's like, well, that's to burn the map once I memorized. My favorite part, though, it goes back to Mako's dad, who was one of the engineers. He's been come up here and they've been saying for a while now how they're going to trick him or something or keep him away from him finding out. Finally demands, I need to see my daughter. I'm like, well, she's busy. We put her in a special program, which is a complete lie. However, we'll give you a virtual interaction with one of the holograms. So it has her like in a kimono, but instead of the non-compliant logo that is usually like on their like overalls, it's an obi. That is way too classy for in here, you know, but it was a nice touch, though. He's talking to her, and I love the moment where he clicks in him that what actually happened or that something's not right. Well, because he asked her to play the song, right? Well, not yet. No, no, no. But asked her beforehand, he goes, well, can you, are you allowed to have instruments? This is how he's setting it up, because he knows that her learning violin was always a front learning calculus yeah clearly they pull up a program of her doing it so she plays it and then he asks her to play the most difficult song that there is because before they said she had to learn just enough to fake it so So it's the last rose of summer that he wants her to play but it's a particular variation on Mm -hmm. that song that he wants which is probably in those movies where they're like oh you remember when we used to go to the beach and you're like well we never went you know and the person's like oh yeah i remember the beach and then later you find out they never went to the beach like one of those like tests you know play this song that i know you can't play exactly so they haven't played and then like he's crying and he says basically he starts crying because at that moment he knows that she's she's either dead or something horrible has happened or 
basically the worst of the worst. That line at the end where where she's done playing and she says, did I do well, father? And then his answer is like, so well, you broke my heart. Oh, yes, that, that line. It was just, it was fitting and perfect. It just, I could see that in a movie. It yeah. was just so well played out. It's classic in that, in that way. So he's like, oh, it was beautiful. And yes, that whole, daddy, I do well. The part where you could tell is when he connected is when he sees Mako's hologram eye and the hologram assistant's eyes together and they're identical, but different like shades. Where they do the split, it's a panel yeah. where they're side by side. That's where I think he realizes that they, this is all just... Right, because it's got the three little dots. That was very clever. The whole part with him is, I think, the, my favorite part of this whole issue. It was just so well done. And basically, then he gets some balls on him. He demands to see the grid. It's like, am I in charge here or am I not? You will take me to do this. He's overseeing the security guard for a while. And he's like talking to him. And clearly, the security guard is ignoring the riot on one screen and zooming in on two, making out like in a bathroom instead. That's one part. And then he gets, basically, he gets the fire extinguisher and bashes him over the head. And then the power goes out. That's when Cam makes a run for it. And she drinks the, I can't remember the security guard's name, but the blonde chick with her. And because she says, oh, you know this well, this place better as I do. And they run it. I like how it looks like an old, like, kids menu map. Yes. <laughs> I like that there's sound in the map where they, like, run into the walls or whatever. You know, because it's pitch black, yeah. so they can't see. There's, like, crack, thud, you know, as they're running through. So that was really, I like that. That was a neat take on that. And basically... Basically, it shows that last panel is them finding someone. And I thought it was going to be the shaved head African-American woman from the beginning because she's clearly in a different part of the prison. She's one of the original people that they took away. And I think that might be her sister, brother, that person they were talking about earlier. But the person they find at the end, I think, is the person who was the original that caused all this. Right. And this is actually one of the things her- I liked about the book is the book ending of it. Like that opening mm-hmm. panel of the secret meeting where they start reciting their lineage. They say that, you know, we're the daughters of Eleanor Doan, right? And we are not afraid, right? And then they find her mm-hmm. and it's my name is Eleanor Doan. So they, they're finding like the, yeah. you know, the first. The like original the, bitch. Yeah, the OG the bitch. bitch. <laughs> yes. bitch in charge here, you know? Basically, <laughs> and she looks like, she does look badass. She, that is but a really I love good it. portrait of her. Like, I like the eyes. Like, the eyes have... And then one of my favorite parts is for the next issue, it's where all hell breaks. They're in a prison where all the lights are out, all the locks are off. Oh, hell yeah! And Daddy Mako is pissed! Yeah. You know all hell's breaking. Yes. So I look forward to the next issue. <laughs> I guess I'll start with the things I liked about the book. Like I said, I liked the book ending of it. I thought that was, you know, a pretty good piece of writing to give you some new information and tell you how important she is and then for them to find her at the end. I liked the that part of the prison where all the transsexuals are being held. That girl gets beat up and she comes back with like all the blood running down her face and the other person's really worried so then she like kind of like kisses her and uses the blood to make like lipstick for both of them and they're like oh well we're both mm-hmm. we're both beautiful now. So I thought that was a nice yeah. way to show someone trying to I guess make the best of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. I guess my big, there are two big problems I have with the the book. First, it comes out very, very infrequently. So I find it very hard to stay invested in the story. This is probably one that I would maybe recommend reading in trade. At least read the first trade and then maybe go issue to issue. The issues come very infrequently. It's, It's issue eight, but it seems like Bitch Planet has been out a long damn time. 
but they've only had eight issues so far. So that that's a weakness. And there are some issues that are really, really great, and there's some that are not. And I don't think this one's that great. The other problem that I have is I feel Kelly Sue is trying to write a really relevant book where she's trying to make a lot of commentary, but she's not telling a very good story to do it. So I think that the actual storytelling here is more in service to ideas that she's trying to get across rather than plot that express those ideas. I think that's one weakness with the book as well. Overall, I mean, it's it's very interesting. The letters column for Bitch Planet is really actually probably one of the better parts of the book, where they have not only a letter column, but they have like different writers writing articles and stuff. And that's that's interesting, too. So I don't know. Overall, it comes out too infrequently for me to get too enthusiastic about it. I prefer that the story conveys your message rather than you using the whole book as a, like the message, like spelled out as broadly and unsubtly as possible. I don't know. Th- those are my criticisms of the book. But there are things that I like, so... But I also acknowledge that this book is I am not the intended audience for this book. I think bringing up the it's in frequency is kind of hard when rating a particular just one issue. I can understand having that complaint in general, but not when it comes to like rating the issue. Um, I mean, mine's in a different way. Like, I like the book so much, I'd rather it come out more frequently. Well, I mean, you have a non-compliant tattoo. I mean, you love this book. It doesn't have to be a stellar win every time. It's really the message of being a female that is non-compliant that I really can get behind and you're right about the the letters column the letters column is part of the thing of what makes the series great it is a good read i mean she it said is. like i can sell you know hundred thousand issues of a comic book every time i put one out and these writers need to be heard but they're not going to get that exposure so i'm gonna these articles in here that people should read uh-huh. people need to read and i'm going to use that that voice that i have to to get that mm-hmm. the word out so they're very interesting and like i said the yeah. ideas I mean, that she's expressing here they're interesting ideas and they're you know good messages and all of that but i don't think the story i think the story is secondary to the message and i don't like that i want mm-hmm. the story and message to serve each other not one to be the slave to the other this for me though i'm very i think forgiving in a way when there's certain parts even a small part of a book where it will win me over and really that like i said earlier in my review of this the part with her dad and the hologram just won me over for this particular issue Um, the rest of it is just kind of okay but that one was just i think really well executed i really like that realization some people need more than that i am a little bit easier to win over sometimes in that regard but then i'm also it's kind of the flip it can just take one thing to throw me off of the entire book as well too to your point of view i don't necessarily agree with it but like you said you're not it's not your audience it clearly is my audience because i'm like hell yeah right yeah no and i acknowledge that that there are that this speaks to experiences that I simply don't have. So there's going to be things that I don't pick up on that go over my head that, you know, so I I get that. I I acknowledge that. I will give it two and a half, The Last Rose of Summer. I gave it three and three quarters. You're breaking my heart. You get me two times in a row, double time. Because I'm moving over to Marvel and Doctor Strange number eight, Marvel Comics, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by Chris Bacallo, inks by Mike Irwin and John Livesey. There's still more. There's a whole bunch of inkers. But wait, there's more. More inkers also by Victor 
Alo Zaba, Alve, Tim Townsend, Jamie Mendoza. Oh, okay, there you go. Those, those are your inkers. And colors by Java Tartaglia and Chris Piccolo. All right. Wow. So, Doctor Strange. Oh, man, this is so good. I'm a fan, as you guys might know. I First of all, let me say I love the cover with the eyeball, like, in the well. Really strong. So, it starts off. It's a little confusing at first. So, it's all these people are migrating to Tibet. And it's a, really interesting how it goes through showing you who starts off one girl had, like, used to have dreams and they were happy and then they stopped and, like, it's like shaking her to her core. It talks about like an old woman who her and her husband have been like living for hundreds of years. They were living off these grapes that I guess kept them preserved and alive. But then now her husband's dead because the grapes uh, shriveled up and died as magic is dying. The one that got to me was the little kid Constantine who has, you know, his like imaginary monster friend that lives under his bed, but it doesn't talk to him anymore. And he's afraid to look under there because he can smell the mm-hmm. rotting body underneath there. Oh, just this little ingot of stories are really interesting. And I, and it actually does kind of get you invested in them a little bit. Like, I wanted to know what was happening with these characters. So basically, they they go to Tibet, and um, Wong is there, bringing them in to replace the monks that he was using before, who were, like, siphoning and taking away Stephen's damage. I wasn't sure if Wong was calling them, or if they're just being called there and Wong is waiting for them. I wasn't clear about that. I think it's that. I don't think he was calling them. I think something was calling them there and he just happened to be there waiting and he's basically going to use it to his advantage if he can because he is one, he's the kind of, I was to say Alfred of this, but he will do what it takes to keep Steven alive. He reminds me of later series Buffy with Giles. You know, he's like the Ripper yeah. Giles. So he's in there, he's trying to help them get better, see what they can do. Zelma's there and he's getting them prepared to take over for those monks and, you know, they're talking about all the fresh graves they just had to dig and everything like that and like all the, and some of the people saw like all the ones they had to pass so then it jumps to Stephen running through the jungle also near Tibet <laughs> nearby and being chased by like weird zombie monkey tribal yeah. monkey men my favorite and I posted this panel where he's somewhere between the cliff and the ground like what no you can't and he's like already did and then the other person's like damn it Stephen because he's calling for a yeah. pickup right and they're like well where do you need to be picked up and that's where the somewhere between the cliff and the ground in that Indiana Jones like very pulp like yeah. the biplane grabs him yes. yeah i just hear it too late and so <laughs> it's the skull of his master the ancient one yeah yes the ancient one apparently it, magic was infused in his bones and these monkey men were like who've been living off magic all this year have siphoning off the last of it and he took it the panel where he's looking at it and he's like i'm so sorry for this it's kind of touching he looks very regretful and like he has to look away while he's crushing it the detail of him looking away when he has to crush the skull tells you yeah. so much about the how he feels the depths they've sunk to to how desperate they are for the magic crumbling between his fingers and you see like this magic dust building and the next one where it's like he's like a plant with determination like the drive and anger in his eyes and then- when he's got the skull of the ancient one it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of like hamlet where he's talking to york's skull i totally said that when i was reading it yep. like i remember when i was reading out loud i remember saying that oh sure, i knew you well instantly just brings that that alas poor york i knew him well hamlet's my face <laughs> so he talks about going after them and it goes back to the sanctum in new york in greenwich and i love how it just gets like to black and white to show again how all magic is dying i mean it's such a change and but it's so noticeable and i think it's i love that effect they've been using this whole time but every time i see it fresh in a new issue i'm just like oh it's 
very striking, yeah. I love that effect. Little round head robot dudes told Lord Imperator, well, there's something in there. We weren't able to do it. And he's the smug ruler. Let me go in there. I'll handle it into the cellar. First walks in, it just looks like a cloaked figure with like a weird white face talking to it. And he's basically saying like things like, oh, but you haven't angered me yet. It seems like a very civil conversation at first. I love the fact that it's so creepy because it seems like he's being so civil and so nice, but you already know what it is because us as readers have seen parts of this before. I was just waiting for that reveal because you knew it was coming. And then he's like, you sound like a lot like him. Maybe I'm angry with you after all. And then it's just like all the rest of the body with the mouths and all. Oh. I think that's the cloak that he had wrapped around himself. And then like throws it back and that's when all the monster mouths are, all the gibbering mouths are inside to eat. Well, if you look before that, there's like a weird long shadow behind him. And I think it's a lot of under, I think he was almost like sitting on oh, it. Maybe. Like he was like kind of lifting him up because he is that thing. It's just, that was just one tendril that was less gruesome that was representing his face, I think. Try to attack it, but clearly it was no effect. Because like, yeah, there's lasers that go into it, but not going to happen. It's gnashing and biting on the character and just good times. It looks very, very disturbing. Yes, it is not pleasant. It goes up to their arsenal, which is not really much of anything again. This is the one that was in the back of the trunk of the car. And there's like looking it over and it's, I believe as Scarlet Witch says, it's not exactly the most impressive she's seen. Rusty old lamps and the axe and some crowns. There's that bow. This junk, you know? Magical knickknacks and junk. A magical thrift shop. With like the axe and everything and he's just like, one way or another. Our souls are held together by scabs and scar tissue. I was like, wow. The price gets paid in full one way or another. There are some really powerful lines in this one. Yeah. He and finds himself back at the monastery and he finds out, he walks in on Wong telling them how he's going to do and he says, Wong was telling them they could leave. But then Stephen comes and it's like, no, you all leave now. He just says, I don't want to know how long you've been doing this, do I? The whole deception that he's had all this time comes out and you can see him warring with it. Like he wants to be, get into it more, but there's no time for it. He's just like, no. It's almost like he's disgusted. Like all these people have been sacrificing themselves for him all this time. So that's just another thing that he has to deal with. And he said before that he thinks that this is his fault because he hasn't paid the price yeah. that needs to be paid. You know, that they've been cheating magic. So he, I don't think he wants to do that anymore. Tax long, which I was pretty shocked like i knew he'd be upset but i didn't think he would do that especially that's also a waste of magic right now which i was like um should you really be doing that so he does that and tells everyone yeah. to leave and they all kind of like shuffle off the librarian gives him the book that she saved and she says it's the only one and he wipes away her tears and everything like that and you know it's a nice such a moment like they hug but then they start filing everyone off away she turns around walking past wong's body and goes into the temple so i feel like she's gonna start pulling some wong shenanigans i don't think she's gonna let him do something stupid she's gonna help him with the camp yeah i think she's not done her part of this battle i guess what are they calling it like the abomination or the whatever that is still fighting and dealing with the lord imperator and being all crazy the battle begins with their uh, trumped up weapons i guess i don't know how to describe i love scarlet witch with her <laughs> shotgun i think that's so yeah, awesome I mean, those scenes are just i found it humorous i also love the part with count chaos <laughs> when he's flying the biplane yes, and shooting everyone count chaos is shooting ghost bullets and eyeballs from outer space this is more fun than <laughs> Saturday night that in Siberia. That's one thing I like about this comic. There's heart there's intrigue like there's that pulp adventure case but there is some comedy thrown in sometimes comes from the most unlikeliest of places when it does show up in these books i think that's why jason aaron is such a good writer is he knows if you stay with one tone too long you become you know desensitized to it so you have to vary 
serious moments with humor and the humor comes from unexpected places so there'll be like a side character who does something kind of unexpected and that's where the humor comes from so lord imperator has been fighting i'm gonna call it the pain i don't know what we're gonna call it and he's like no monsters no more monsters like he's getting fed up he's trying to fight this thing now they're attacking he's clearly getting overwhelmed and he's not used to this he's used to being like i'm the badass and then all of a sudden from the side it's like you want a monster then come on, you bastard. I'll be your monster. And it's like Steven with like the bow and arrow. I'm like, yeah. Shot him right in the back. <laughs> Jason Aaron is a fantastic writer. He is one of the most gifted writers in comics working right now. Jason Aaron, thank you. It's masterfully constructed. There's nothing wasted in here. I gave this four and three quarters. I'll be your monster. I will give this four. Price has to be paid. I believe you had another. You're taking us to a galaxy far, far away. Long, long ago. Yes. So I had Star Wars The Force Awakens number one from Marvel Comics, written by Chuck Wendig, art by Lucas Ross, colors by Frank Martin. How I said everything in Doctor Strange belongs there. This is a book that I do not understand why it exists. Oh, thank God. (laughs) First of all, it's an exact retelling of The Force Awakens. So if you've seen The Force Awakens, you've read this first issue. There's not even like different camera angles or didn't see like this is, oh, we're going to get the extended cut, you know, with extra scenes in the comic that explain what's going on. Nope. The bread she eats is green in the movie and it's orange colored in the comic. That's different. There's parts where I've heard interviews with Harrison Ford where he was talking about the original dialogue in the Star Wars movies where there would be lines I remember as like classic Han Solo lines. The way they were written was just very dry and he would tell George Lucas, you know, George, you can write this on the page, but you can't say this. And then he would change them and mm. make them his own. I think the one of the more classic examples is, you know, this isn't like dusting crops. That's not in the script where Leia tells him he loves her and he says, I know. That's also not in the script. That's Harrison Ford may bring that character to life. And this feels like rather than going from the movie, they went from the script, if that makes sense. Like there's no life in this. A complete money grab and an exact copy of the movie. There is no reason for this book to exist. If you've seen the movie, there's no need to read the comic. If you haven't seen the movie, don't read the comic. Watch the movie because the movie's a hundred times better. The art is terrible. This is just very lazy by the numbers. There's nothing that I enjoyed about this at all. The only reason I didn't, I don't totally hate this, is it is a retelling or a telling, not even retelling. It's just, it's telling the story of The Force Awakens. And I like that story. So, but there's nothing that the artist or writer brought to this at all that is enjoyable or unique or new. This was, in my opinion, the worst Star Wars book I've ever read. Gosh, I was going to say that. So what do you think of this piece of shit? I wouldn't call it a piece of shit, but I also think it's the worst. Like, they had had such a good run with all the new Star Wars stuff. And even Leia, you know, which I don't really care for the Leia series. I felt like this was unnecessary. I understand it is very common to put out, like, a novelization of a movie or whatever. And, you know, comic books, sure. I could see that. And I could definitely see... Big fans buying it anyways. It is like if you're rotoscoping something, like when you take live action to an animation forum, it's mm-hmm. like they paused it, rotoscoped it, and just did this, just drew over it. It yeah. has that kind of classic comic book, like the old Star Wars comics from back in the 80s and early 90s like feel. It does have that look to it. That doesn't make it a good look. Most noticeable with Poe and Finn where they're talking and there's no timing. The way that they construct the panels, they don't give you the spaces for the pauses. So it just comes across... 
like I've seen the scenes how they should sound yeah, and feel. Exactly. And they're very entertaining. Mm -hmm. And the way that they write it, it doesn't read that way. It at doesn't all. read that way. Like there's part where you know Poe first meets Kylo Ren, and he's like, "Who talks? Do I talk first? You know, you talk. Yeah. That's a good scene in the movie. That's funny. And in this, because they don't break it up into different panels, it just comes across as one line of dialogue. Like there's no, yeah. they don't do it well enough to give you that comedic timing. I heard it in my head how the movie sounds, but I remember looking at it going, "It won't read that way." It's the actors, not the script, and they're going from the script. Yeah. They also drop some of the the dialogue because he goes, "Nice to meet you too," right? And the two is taken off. It just says, "Nice to meet you." I know that because that dialogue is so catchy and flows so well in the movie that I know that's the line. I'm like, and they're dropping off some of the words. Scripting that, laying out the panels, is lazy. It's no. just it's lazy and a money grab, and I despise this book. It is completely unnecessary. If you're a big fan, you want to have it, have it. I mean, the only thing extra that it gives you, like it explains that the portions on Jakku are life. Clear in the movie, but they spell it out for you in here. The only thing I did like is that they kept her speaking a foreign language to Tito when she's rescuing BB-8. If you like Force Awakens and you need more of that in your life, read Poe Dameron. That book is the characters you like, but yeah. they're doing shit that you haven't seen before. So, I mean, that's not my favorite Star Wars book, but at least yeah. that has a reason for existing. It's telling you something you didn't know before. Yeah, I would not recommend this to anyone for any reason. I give it yeah. one and a half BB-8s. I gave it two Poe's. It's Star Wars, so I can't completely hate it. I think if I had a kid who I wanted to encourage who loved Star Wars and wanted to encourage comics and reading, I might throw it their way. It shouldn't even yeah. say written by. Sorry, Chuck. I'm not trying to be mean. Be more adapted from the screenplay by or something. You didn't write, unless you are the writer of the original script, which I don't think you are, Chuck. Agreed. I think it should Agreed. be more adapted by or so, those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, you can go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and make sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.